Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. It was great to be in Huntsville in North Alabama here with the beautiful weather. And uh, it was especially a treat for me getting to have my wife with me for the last uh, 24 hours or so before she left to go back. We are away from Wetumpka a good amount. And she said, Eric, I've been gone from Wetumpka so much, the Wetumpka Church of Christ, uh, that she wanted to be there tomorrow. But she was so thankful that she was able to be here last night with, uh, with you all. Thank you for deciding to come out on a Saturday night when I realized there are easier things that you could do than sit in a padded chair in a cool auditorium to you know listen to and meditate on some things about God's Word. There are some easier things. You could be in bed right now, right? You could be at Rossi's eating Mexican food. You could be doing something else. But you're here, and thank you for being here, uh, being here this evening to talk about what I believe are and truly are, if there is a God, the most important things that we can comprehend. I mean, if there is no God, then uh, we are the most foolish people in the uh, the history of the world. I did have a, a non-Christian friend that I talked to just a couple of days ago, and he uh, I've been working on him for years. We graduated high school together. He now lives in Tennessee. He's a nice, you know, I was going to say young man, but not you know, we're, we're getting close to 50 now, so I, I guess he's not a, uh, a young man, but he's a middle-aged guy that I've been working on, and maybe one day his heart will come to bow to the will of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But he said something to him the other day like, uh, Eric, you know, I was thinking recently and talking to a friend about, wouldn't the biggest hoax ever be if at the end of time there is no God? And I was like, buddy... If, if there is no God at the end of time, you're not going to know it because you're just going to be dead because there is no afterlife if there is no God. But the fact is, and the facts are, the evidence indicates that there is a God and that when we sing that He is alive, that we're talking about and we're singing to one another about things that certainly absolutely matter. They are life and death and spiritual life and death issues. And even though those songs that we sing and the thoughts that we have, that they resonate with us, those who believe in God, and they bring all sorts of favorable and wonderful feelings within us, those feelings are not, not only they're not what guide us, but they're not the foundation upon which we build our faith. When Jesus came to earth, He wanted people to have a strong faith in the evidence that He gave. And He wanted people with open minds and open hearts to listen to it. And wasn't it interesting that when He came, and He came, I know, among the Jews, that it was the largely the the, the religious the, the religious leaders among the Jews who rejected Him. And the common people oftentimes heard Him gladly. Well, let's just humble ourselves and let's be truth seekers. You see, truth has nothing to fear. Truth has nothing to fear. Uh, Even though there may be someone who comes up to you with some alleged criticism of the God of the Bible or with some kind of uh, alleged argument against God or if they come up to you with a, a Bible passage and say, see, this proves that the Bible is not from God... I believe that a good attitude would be, you know what, let's look into that, let's delve into that. We don't have to be afraid of those things, but I do think it's very helpful to other people when we will listen, right? When we will listen to what other people say. When we are patient and long-suffering with other people, people who may have a lot of disagreements with us, we don't want to engage in, in the kind of cancel culture that we see among cancel culture. You know, Christians are the very opposite of that because Jesus was the very opposite of that. I mean, Jesus came into a cancel culture and His his response was, well, I'm just going to cancel you and cancel you and cancel you. He came to teach and to preach and to let His light shine among a cancel culture. 
And He was the truth, and He knew that the truth had nothing to fear. Oh, they took His physical life, but you know, Jesus rose again, and Jesus forever lives. And So the truth has nothing to fear, the theist has nothing to fear, the Bible believer has nothing to fear, but we don't operate in a realm of circular reasoning. We don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God because we believe in God, even though, logically speaking, there must be a God before you come to believe that the Bible is His Word. But we don't say, well, I believe that the Bible is the Word of God because God exists, or because my parents taught me that the Bible is the Word of God, even though that's one of the greatest things that parents can teach their children, and we don't need to be ashamed of that. We need to be happy to do it. But we don't ultimately believe that. I'm not a Christian today because my parents are Christians, though admittedly, I grew up in a Christian home and am proud of it. I'm not ashamed of it. And I'm not, I'm not, um, uh, I don't want to be dishonest, so I let people know, listen, I'm biased toward Christianity. I'm biased toward wanting to believe in God. I want to believe my life has purpose. I do. I really want to believe that. I want to believe that there is life after death. I, I truly want to believe that. I don't, I don't want to live, I don't know how people really if they contemplate on these things, live with the idea that, you know what, when I die, there's nothing absolutely on the other side. It's just, I'm just like my dog. I'm just going to be dead all over like Rover. You know, or I don't want to be agnostic about it and just like, well, I don't really know if there is anything on the other side. I, I, I'm biased. I admit it. I, I'm biased. But you know what? You can be biased about something and still arrive at the truth of the matter. Right? Someone who is raised... To know that 2 plus 2 is 4 is biased toward that answer. But is there, is there a right and wrong answer about 2 plus 2? Someone else might be raised to, to you know, believe that it's 5, but that's a totally wrong answer. If you're raised to believe that there is a God or that the Bible is the Word of God, if that's the way you're raised and 20 or 30 years down the road you say, well, I really want to know, you know, that's just how I was raised and that's what I believe, but is that really true? You know, is marriage to be for life? Is it one man for one woman for life? Or how do we really know that? Who, 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 who gets to define that? And so maybe you question some things. And I would encourage all of us to really examine ourselves and to make sure that our faith is our faith, but I'm here to tell you, there will never be, and I, I do not say this arrogantly, I do not you know, want the, it to come across that way, but there will never be a good reason. There will never be a logical reason. There will never be a truthful reason to deny that God exists, the Bible is His Word, Jesus is His Son, and that Jesus is the only way, the one way, to eternal life with a holy, just, and righteous, and loving God who gave His only begotten Son that we might forever and ever live with Him. God set it all up. I'm not presupposing God. I'm saying we can know based upon the evidence that God exists. And as we talked about last night, we can know that the Bible is the Word of God because to err is human, yet the Bible writers got it all right. They were correct about everything. In my humble judgment, when you think about all the evidences for the, for the inspiration of the Bible, when you think about the Bible's scientific accuracy and foreknowledge, when you think about the predictive prophecy in Scripture, by the way, there's an article in the back uh, called Micah Predicted the Place. That's about Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. If you want to read about that, as we, as we looked last night, trying to be a little more on the offensive side of things, you know, as, as you go through the Bible and you see all the evidences for it, in my humble judgment, all of these evidences, they can be summarized, they can be wound down into one kind of overarching, all-encompassing reason, that is... It is simply human to err in our writings of history books, of books about health, of books uh, um, about sports, or whatever they may be. It's, it's human to make mistakes in writing newspaper articles. But if everything the Bible writers ever wrote about the past, about the day and time in which they lived, and especially, and especially about the future, which is addressed hundreds of times throughout the Old Testament and sometimes in the New Testament, wherever checkable, they're always correct. And then as we ended our time together last night, you know what's going to happen when you make that all-encompassing, you know, summarizing statement for why we can know that the Bible is the Word of God. People are going to say, wait a minute, but the Bible writers did make mistakes. You remember last night we quoted from Dan Barker who said, 
People who are free of theological bias notice. So we're supposedly biased. And again, you know, I told you that I, I do, I suppose, have somewhat of, of, of a bias because of my Christian raising by Christian parents. But again, everyone, you might say, has a, somewhere that they were raised. Listen, I was raised in Oklahoma. Do I think that Oklahoma is a great state? I certainly do. Do I think that the little town of Muskogee was a great place to grow up? I certainly do. Am I biased? Okay, I am. But what about things that really matter? that are either true or false, and that you can know that. Well, Dan Barker says, no honest person can pretend it is a perfect book. Contradictions underscore the fact that on balance, the Bible is not a reliable source of truth. Allegedly, if if Luke says in Luke 23 that one criminal reviled Jesus, but Matthew and Mark mention that both criminals reviled him, how can the Bible be the Word of God? If in 1 Chronicles we read that Azariah was the father of Jotham, but in 2 Chronicles we read that Uzziah was the father of Jotham, how can the Bible be the Word of God? If Judas died before the resurrection of Jesus and Matthias took his place, how could the twelve have seen the resurrected Jesus? These are real, so-called, alleged you know, contradictions that have really been proposed as this is why you shouldn't believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Now to err as human... And if the Bible writers got it all right, then the Bible writers were inspired by God. Exactly what Paul said was going on, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Exactly what Peter said was going on, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. That would be the case. But if the Bible writers made the kinds of mistakes that you and I make, the kinds of mistakes I make when I'm teaching a class or when I'm preaching or when I'm writing, well then... They were no more inspired than I am. I'm not an inspired apostle or prophet. I read and I study what the Word of God has revealed to us, told us, and I seek to rightly divide it, to handle it carefully, and to interpret it and preach it like it should be, faithfully and truthfully. That is my aim. That is my goal. Let's preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and let's allow God to talk to us. I'm not an inspired prophet. And if the Bible writers made the kinds of mistakes that they claim, like if John wrote this, that Jesus actually said this, then Jesus was mistaken, or he was a liar, or John was. Allegedly, if Jesus said, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true, in John 5.31, and yet in John 8.14 he said, his witness is true. How could it be that Paul's men heard a voice when they were on the road to Damascus, if in Acts 22.9, Paul said the men did not hear a voice. These are just a sampling. Some, you, you see what, what happens a lot, maybe you recall a debate that my colleague Kyle Butt had with Dan Barker back in 2009 at the University of South Carolina, which was on, does the God of the Bible exist? And Dan Barker got up, as I recall, in his opening speech, and he just began to rattle off all of these so-called alleged contradictions that pertain to God in the Bible. You can open up a number of different websites on your smartphone or your computer, and you can see where there will be hundreds of these kinds of things. And so tonight, what I would like to deal with in uh, you know the time that we have here, and I'm going to try to move through this fairly quickly, is help us deal with such criticisms of what the Bible writers wrote by using a number of principles of Bible interpretation that will help us. I mean, did Jesus rise from the dead on the third day after three days? Was He in the grave three days and three nights? Hopefully tomorrow we will be looking at that. So let's look at some principles of interpretation to remember. Beginning with this fact, that just as you seek to be considered innocent until proven guilty, we should understand that the Bible writers are innocent until proven guilty. You know, if if um, something came over the radio today that a man with blue shoes robbed a bank today, did every person who was wearing blue shoes in, in Huntsville, should they be assumed to be guilty now, you might be, you might have some questions about this person. You might investigate that. But to presume that a person is guilty of robbing a bank just because he or she was wearing blue shoes on that same day that someone else was wearing them when robbing a bank doesn't mean that they were guilty of robbing the bank. Though, you know, it could say, well, you're wearing blue shoes. Someone blue shoes robbed the bank. You robbed the bank. Wait just a minute. A person is innocent until proven 
guilty. This is a, a fundamental law in our society. I'm not saying just because it's, it's understood in our society that that makes it, we have to, you know, interpret the Bible that way. I'm saying, listen, this is an everyday uh, understanding as we live life. I mean, think about this. When you go to the gas station and you put your credit card or your debit card into the pump or you go inside and pay and you begin to pump your gas, do you assume every time you pump your gas that the gas company, that local store there, that they have cheated you out of gas because maybe your dollar is not going as far today as it was maybe a few months or years ago? Is it, is it safe to assume that? No, it's not safe to assume that. That might happen, and maybe there needs to be some investigation that's done, but you don't, you know, every time you go to the grocery store, do you just assume that the person who's checking you out, and when I say checking you out, I mean like, you know, you're, you're at, at the line there, and, and you're, you're, you're getting ready to purchase your groceries, okay? You have to be careful how you say things today, right? Um, do you just assume, I mean, do you really think the person is is just trying to make your life harder. Now, some people do that. I get it. But can you imagine if every person who went through a Walmart line, of course, these days you do a lot of that automatic stuff, so it would be your own fault, I guess, right? If you, I don't know, maybe if you messed up. But you don't just assume every time you have a dealing with someone, oh, he's lying, she's lying. They're, no, you give people the benefit of the doubt, don't you? At least we should. I mean, you, you understand that people are innocent until proven... Until, how, how hectic would life be if every time you had an interaction with someone, you just assumed guilty, guilty, lying, you're lying. I mean, what if a kid grew up in a house and he thought to himself, every time, everything my parents speak to me, everything they say is a lie. They are guilty until proven innocent. Son, that stove is hot. Don't touch the hot stove. You're lying to me. I'm going to go touch the hot stove. And then he touches it. Oh, well, I, you know, I suppose that you're innocent. I suppose you, that you were telling the truth. And, and just imagine if every interaction that child had with his parents from a young age, he just assumed everything they said was wrong, was a lie, was not truth, not truthful. I'm not saying a parent can't lie. I'm, I'm saying that. Can you imagine how crazy life would be? How, how difficult it would be if you just assumed everything that everyone ever said? Again, that doesn't mean that everyone always tells the truth. I'm saying that we generally operate in life of people being innocent until proven guilty. So if someone, if someone accused me to, tonight of some, uh, you know, of, I don't know, robbing a gas station or uh, being unfaithful to my wonderful wife, you know, that, those are serious allegations. We understand, generally speaking, that if you're going to make such allegations, then you need to, you need to make sure they're backed up with evidence. We have a petty cash drawer at Apologetics Press. And, you know, sometimes we have some necessities we need, like a battery. Sometimes we need to get batteries or paper or the ever-important Krispy Kreme donuts. If you, you, you get those and you need to get reimbursed for those. I'm, I'm just kidding. I don't think I've ever been reimbursed for Krispy Kreme donuts. But, you know, if someone saw me get into the petty cash drawer in the general manager's office and take some money, and they said, Eric... I saw you stealing from Apologetics Press today. By the way, I don't make anything off the books that are in the back. I'm supported like a missionary, um, and I get supported in teaching and preaching, and so all of the funds that uh, are, are made from any of the Bible sales or any other books in the back, that goes right back to AP. And, you know, if I'm stealing from AP, I need to be caught. I want to be caught, right? Because I want my soul right with the Lord. And I can tell you what, 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 or 1,000 bucks ain't worth ain't worth disappointing my God and separating myself from God. But let's go back to this example for a minute. Is someone, is someone right? Is someone safe to conclude that Eric Lyons is a thief because he, I saw him put his hand into the petty cash drawer at Apologetics Press and he got out a $20 bill. Maybe it was $100. But I don't know why you'd want to get out 100 because you just need to get changed for 100 At least people like me do because I don't really deal in hundreds that much. But is it safe to assume that? No. And generally speaking, fair people understand that. So let's move on. Well, let me, let me just move to a, a quotation by Simon Greenleaf, who wrote in Testimony of the Evangelist years ago. He said, The rule of municipal law on this subject is familiar and applies with equal force to all ancient writings, whether documentary or otherwise. And as it comes first in order in the prosecution of these inquiries, it may be, for the sake of mere convenience, be designated as our first rule. In fact, 
It just so happens that's our first rule, okay? I wonder where I got that from. Uh, every document, apparently ancient, coming from the proper repository or custody and bearing on its force no evident face, no evident marks of forgery, the law presumes to be genuine and devolves on the opposing party the burden of proving it to be otherwise. The opposing party, the party that's making the allegation, they have to prove their case. Point number two, and these two points go hand in hand. The Bible writers are innocent until proven guilty, and second of all this evening, any legitimately possible answer should suffice. I mean, think about me going into the petty cash drawer, and there's video footage of that. Or let's say, let's back up for a minute. Let's say it's just me, and, and, and let's say that there's some investigation done, and I say, well, okay, uh, someone makes this allegation. I say, well, I was getting reimbursed for this you know, pack of $5 batteries that I purchased. Here's the receipt. Here's what I was getting out. Or maybe I just say that you know, I have an agreement with the, gen- the general manager and the executive director there that when I need to get reimbursed for something, I can, and here's the process, and I, I give the answers. Well, people could reject those answers if they want to, but are those legitimate answers? But to make it a little bit more comparative to the Bible writers themselves, think about this example. Let's say that there's video footage of me getting into the petty cash drawer, and this surfaces 100 years from now. Am I going to be here 100 years from now? Oh, I hope not. I mean, I really do. I hope not. I'm, listen, I'm, I'm 47 years old now. I, I, I want to be. I want to be safe in the arms of Jesus. I want to be in paradise. I, I, want, I want to be where I'm living to be. Right? I, I don't. I don't. But let's say a hundred years from now, there's video footage of this. And let's say my, if I have grandchildren or great grandchildren, they are shown this video footage and they're said, "Listen, Eric Lyons, your grandfather or great grandfather or whatever I am to them, uh, he was a thief, and here's evidence of that." So what? What do my my descendants do with that? Well, they may say, well, well, if he was, he was. That's very sad. They they might act that way. Or they might say, you know, I'm going to look at this a little bit because you don't need to just assume that my great-grandfather was a thief. And so that maybe they say the same things I said earlier. How do you know that he doesn't have a prearranged agreement with the general manager, the director, to get reimbursed? How do you know that you know he uh, wasn't going in there with a receipt to get reimbursed for a purchase that he made for the organization? Any legitimately possible answer should suffice. So let's look at a Bible example here. I mean, one of those alleged mistakes in the Bible. Did those who died on the two crosses next to Jesus, did they revile Him or not? Because Luke says, then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed Him. Yet Matthew says, even the robbers who were crucified with Him reviled Him. And Mark says, even those who were crucified with Him reviled Him. So was it one thief or was it both of those individuals who reviled Jesus? How are we to understand what the Bible says? says here. Is this, is this a legitimate contradiction? Well, we need to remember, first of all, there's a, there's a couple of possibilities here. And again, that's point number two. Any legitimately possible answer should suffice. It's possible that both these reviled Jesus and then one of them repented. How could anyone say that's not possible? You know, personally, I don't think that's the likeliest answer. But I think this is a... Well, let me just ask you this. Have you ever sinned in your life and shortly thereafter been very sorry for it, you know, expressed regret for it to God, asked for forgiveness as you were sorry, repenting for your actions? Do we all sin? Have we all sinned? Absolutely. Those of us who have reached an age of mental maturity or accountability, we've all sinned, Romans 3.10, Romans 3.23. Everyone who has ever reached that age or that level of maturity other than Jesus Christ have all sinned. Don't we want to repent very soon after we sin? I mean, does anyone who's a Christian tonight want to say, you know, I think it's a really good idea after we sin just to wait like days and weeks and months to repent? Now, so is is it possible that one of the thieves... Both of the thieves sinned against Jesus and then one of them expressed nearly immediate regret and was given forgiveness by God who was dying on the cross for His sins too. 
That's very possible. But I think there's actually a likelier explanation, and that is that Matthew and Mark were using a figure of speech. It's a figure of speech. We don't use the term all the time, but we use the figure of speech quite often called synecdoche, where a part is put for the whole or the whole for the part, when the plural is put for the singular or the singular for the plural. I know I said that kind of quickly, and, and, and a lot of times we don't you know, use the names of the figures of speech, and we don't always define them, but we use them a lot. I mean, the Bible writers did. The, the ark of Noah rested on the mountains of Ararat. But did the ark really rest on multiple mountains, two or more mountains at the same time, or is this just the mountain range? When the Bible says that Sarah nursed children, who, who, who were the children? Well, the, the children were, or the child was, Isaac. You know, when, when, a, when a, a commander in the military says, we have a thousand boots on the ground, what do you visualize when someone says, we have a thousand boots on the ground? What do the boots represent? The boots are a part of the soldier that represents all of the soldier with that way of wording it. It's a figure of speech known as synecdoche. If I said, you ought to go outside and check out my swagger wagon. If I say, I'm talking about my 2001 Toyota Sienna that has nearly 270,000 miles on it. It only uses about a quart of oil about every 500 miles now or something like that. I've been quite amazed lately. I'm like, man, I'm having to put a lot in here these days. And if I said, I want you to go check out my wheels outside. By the way, they have, I think, Nissan wheels, but it's a Toyota minivan. We're just all mixed up in our family, y'all. And um, if I said, let's check out our wheels. Now, if you know me, you know that Eric, if you like your wheels, that's great. I've not really ever cared much about wheels. I've never put much money into literal wheels I mean, like I said, I took the wheels off another vehicle to put them on this vehicle. I, that does, I don't really care if they say Nissan. At least I think that's the van that has those on there. But the wheels, they, when I say that, that's representing the entire van. It's a figure of speech called synecdoche. You know what I think is going on right there in Matthew chapter 27 and in Mark's account? Well, Matthew has been dealing with these categories of people who were reviling Jesus. You can read of the soldiers who were reviling him, Matthew 27, verse 27, uh, how they mocked him, verse 29. You can read in verse 39 of those who passed by, how they blasphemed him. Verse 41, the chief priest, they mocked him. And then there was this other category of people who mocked him, the robbers, those thieves who were dying on the cross alongside of Jesus. But not necessarily, maybe, both of them. What do you mean, Eric? I just mean that sometimes the plural is used not to represent a literal number of multiple individuals, but it's used to represent a category of people. Let me ask you this. Maybe you are, maybe you're not like me, but I have two sons and one daughter, and, and I can't tell you how many times when my kids, especially were little, I would say, boys and girls, let's load up in the car. Bo, Micah, and Shelby. Boys and girls, come on. Listen, when I say boys and girls, I'm not talking to Miss Jana. <laughs> I'm not talking to her. Thankfully, she knows how to get to places generally on time, and I'm thankful for that. But you know when you have kids and you're rushing around on a Wednesday night, you know, to get to Bible study at 6.30 or 7, or maybe on Sunday morning early. Listen, at Wetumpkin now, we meet, we start meeting at 8.30 on Sunday morning. Because you can imagine sometimes it gets a little bit difficult with, with, when you had younger kids or maybe even teenagers sometimes. And it's boys and girls, come on. Well, why would I ever say girls? Well, because boys and girls sounds funny, right? Boys and girls, come on. I mean, someone might say, well, Eric, doesn't your girl have a name? Yes, but we say boys and girls because the emphasis is not on the number of children, it's on the categories of children. I could say kids come on, and I'm sure I said that plenty of times. Sometimes I say boys and girls, even though the reference is to one. So sometimes we have figures of speech like synecdoche that are used. But the point is that any legitimately possible answer should suffice. Brother J.W. Garvey wrote many years ago when he said, when there is an appearance of contradiction between two writers, common justice, common justice requires that before we pronounce one or both of them false, we should exhaust our ingenuity in searching for some probable, that should be probable, sorry, supposition on the ground of which they may both be true. The better the general reputation of the writers, the more imperative is this obligation, lest we condemn as false those who are entitled to respectful consideration. 
think he said this very well. Any legitimate possible solution should suffice. It's, it's not appropriate to assume when people should have our respectful consideration to assume the worst when the worst cannot be proven and there are legitimate possibilities. Thirdly, and I'm not going to spend much time on this point, and here's why, because I believe that of all the principles that we have and will discuss, that this is one that you are probably the most familiar with. That if you want to look at these passages that people say are contradictory, sometimes you don't need to go any further than the that passage. I mean, like that paragraph. You know, Matthew chapter... 7 and verse 1, people say, well, you know, over there it says, judge not that you be not judged. And then, you know, you can read over there in John chapter 7 and verse uh, verse 24 that if we judge, we do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So wait a minute, are you to judge or not judge? How can you have that judgment there? You know, no judgment in Matthew 7 and verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Well, because if you read the rest of that passage, he's talking about, like he's been talking about Jesus throughout the Sermon on the Mount, on unrighteousness, on insincerity, on hypocrisy. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, don't do your charitable deeds to be seen by men. If that's your reason for doing charitable deeds, you might as well not do that. If you're praying to be seen of men, you're praying in an insincere way. Don't even, don't do that. Don't fast to be seen of men. When he's saying don't judge, as the rest of that paragraph indicates, don't do it when you have a beam in your own eye. You first take care of yourself. You, you examine yourself. You get yourself right and then you help other people. You know, if you just look at the context Chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, he's actually saying you do have to make judgments. Chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, you've got to know, look at the fruit that is bearing, especially as we examine the teachings of other people, including the very teachings that we are looking at this evening. We need to examine the context. And again, because I think I can safely assume that that is probably the most familiar of all of these principles. And for the sake of time this evening, I'm going to move on to the fourth principle. And that is to look at who is doing the talking. Which, if you look at these four points, the first two go together very well. The second two, observe the context, really involves that. Look at who is doing the talking. I mean, who is it? Who said you shall not surely die? I mean, is that a mistake in Scripture? Was that a contradiction between uh, passages of the Bible in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3? No, because Genesis chapter 3, this is Satan that's doing the talking. Moses simply recorded it by inspiration. When you read, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. Are we supposed to believe that about Jesus? No, that was a statement made by the enemies of Jesus. We look at who is doing the talking. Curse God and die. That's what we do. We just open up our Bibles and we see that there is a declarative statement, a command, we are to curse God and die. Uh, No, that's not how. And these are very elementary examples, I understand. But this is Job giving his, excuse me, Job's wife giving him some not so good advice, though if we give her the benefit of the doubt, no doubt she was in so much pain, having lost ten children to the afterlife and, and, and seeing her husband go through all these things. And so, again, trying to give her the benefit of the doubt, she said something, though, that Job should not do and that we, can't, we cannot incorrectly, we should never incorrectly mishandle the Scriptures in such a way to think that, oh, that's what we're supposed to do. Or are we supposed to believe that Job really was wicked because... One of his friends, Eliphaz, said, Is not your wickedness great and your iniquity without end? It was Eliphaz who said this. It wasn't God who said this. Eliphaz was an uninspired spokesman. And Job, the book of Job, is full of... It's a book that's written down by inspiration, but it's full of uninspired utterances or speeches by various individuals. I mean, who was it that killed Saul? Because in 2 Samuel chapter... 21, you see that there was a man who came to David and he said, uh, from, from Saul's camp, and he said that he is the one who uh, killed Saul after the king asked him to. He said, I am an Amalekite. And, and he said, you know, that Saul said, please stand over me and kill me. So I stood over him and killed him. But that contradicts 
1 Samuel chapter 31 and verse 4. So, how are we to understand this? The way you understand this is the same way we understand these other Scriptures. That there are statements that people make that are recorded in Scripture that they made that they made incorrectly or that they, they were lying. Was Satan lying when he said what he said to, uh, to Eve? Absolutely. Was, um, was this person, this Amalekite, lying to, to David? Yes, he was because 1 Samuel 31 verse 4 tells us what the truth of the matter was. The fifth principle is to, to consider the fact that supplementation is not equivalent to a contradiction. This might be one of the more important principles that we're looking at tonight because it's one that seems to oftentimes be overlooked. That supplementation is not equivalent to a contradiction. Let me give you just a couple of very elementary examples. Now, ones that, that I don't know that I've ever even heard anyone say that these are actual contradictions because it's kind of so simple to understand. That when Mark says that Barabbas was a murderer, and when John says that Barabbas was a robber, are these contradictory statements? No, they're not contradictory. They're just supplementary. Um, they're supplemental statements. Could a robber also be a murderer? Could a murderer also be a robber? Absolutely. I believe I was teaching a class in prison one time. Not that I was like there sentenced to be in prison, but I was there teaching a class and... And I, if I recall correctly, this was the example I used. And, you know, there was just a chuckle when I said, have you ever known anyone, you know, who was both a robber and a murderer? And, uh, yeah, there have been a lot of those throughout history. Or what about this example? Mark mentions that Jesus fed 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish. And Matthew says he fed 5,000 men. And then he adds, besides the women and children, he adds this. Is this, is this some kind of mistake? I've never even heard, okay, I've not even heard that this is, I've not even heard skeptics ever say it is because even they understand in these simple examples that, oh, this is just Matthew giving more details than Mark. Mark uh, omitted this, but when you put the accounts together, there's not a contradiction. There is harmony, there is consistency, understanding that there is supplemental uh, material that is given. Now listen, if, if there was not supplemental material, that's given by one or another Bible writer, what would be the point, what would be the point of four gospel accounts? I mean, if everyone said the exact same thing, then you would really just have what? You would really just have one. Because you know what happens when everyone says the exact same thing? You know what happens? It's what happened on uh, Law and Order back 20 years ago or whenever I was watching Lenny doing some uh, investigation. And there was a crime that was committed, and he interviewed this individual and this individual, and I think it was about four different individuals, and they all had the exact same story down to the exact little minute details without really any variation. And you know what he quickly came to the conclusion after more investigation? Oh, that they participated in collusion. In collusion. And they had made it up. What about this example, though? And we mentioned this one earlier, where Uzziah is called the father of Jotham, and yet Azariah is also called the father of Jotham. And we want to know, well, which one is it? Because 2 Kings 15 and verse 7, even within the same chapter, we read, verse 7, So Azariah rested with his fathers, and they buried him and his fathers uh, with his fathers in the city of David. Then Jotham his son reigned in his place. Azariah and Jotham. Just a few verses later, you read in verse 32 of 2 Kings 15, In the second year of Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. So there are a lot of, a number of different verses that we have mentioned up here where you have two different names that are given as the father of Jotham. So which one is it? Are we to believe that within just a few verses... But this person didn't know who the, the dad, the father of Jotham was. You know what's amazing to me is the Bible writers penned a book. I mean, different books that became one book after about 15, 1600 years that mankind has been studying and, and that mankind has purchased by millions and hundreds of millions, and I suppose now billions. It's the greatest 
book the world has ever known in, in terms of the number of copies and how much it has been read and studied and meditated on. And these Bible writers were so good at what they did to write such a book and they couldn't even remember who the dad of Jotham was within a few verses of each other. Or do you think maybe there's another another explanation here? Like, do you know how many times people in the Bible had more than one name? I mean, was Abram's name not changed to Abraham? Was, was Jacob's name not changed to Israel? Was Joseph, did he not have one of the coolest names ever? I mean, not Joseph, I'm talking about Zaphnath Paneah. Anybody, boy, I tell you what, if we could do it all over again, maybe we could just, instead of Bo, B-O, maybe we could call him Zaphnath Paneah. He might rather just have a two-letter name, I don't know. I mean, some of the people like Saul, his name was changed to Paul and Peter. I mean, what about Peter? All the passages where you read of Peter, of Simon, of Cephas, of Simon Peter. Well, are we talking about the same person? Are all these contradictions? There are a lot of names given in Scripture where people had more than one name. Ruel, Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, Gideon. His name was changed to Jerubbabel or Eliakim as, as Jehoiakim. Do you think it's very possible that Azariah and Uzziah were, were two different names of the same person? Just curiously, any of you go by... I mean, you don't have to raise your hands, but do any of you go by more than one name? Uh, let me tell you, my dad is Clifford Lee Lyons. He's gone by Clifford. He's gone by Cliff. Uh, when he was in the army, I believe they called him Chogi. I'm, I don't really know why, but that was his name. His, uh, uh, his mom and his brothers and many others just called him Chip. So imagine some story written about Chip, about Chogi, about Clifford, about Cliff. All the same person. You know, one of my good friends, his name is Kyle. His first name, as I recall correctly, is Robert. But I never call him Robert. Robert Kyle. I believe it's, we just call him Kyle. Do you know that people in Bible times, sometimes they went by more than one name, and it's very possible that there in, again, any possible solution should suffice, that right there in 2 Kings that you have two names given for the same person. Think about this, this principle, and we're going to wind this down as quickly as I can. Who went to the tomb of Jesus? This is probably one of the most frequently cited quote-unquote contradictions in the Bible. Well, who went to the tomb of Jesus? Was it Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, and Salome? Was it Mary Magdalene, the other Mary? Was it just Mary? Dan Barker said the resurrection of Jesus is one of the few stories that is, that is told repeatedly in the Bible. When we compare the accounts, we see that they don't agree. The story of the resurrection of Jesus is hopelessly irreconcilable. Well, Matthew 28, 1, Mary. Mary Magdalene, the other Mary. Mark 16, 1, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices and came to the tomb of Jesus. And John mentions Mary Magdalene. And what principle are we looking at? Supplementation is not equivalent to a contradiction. I realize someone says, hey, here's the contradiction. Look at that on the screen. Those are contradictory statements. Actually, they're different statements, right? Are different statements to be expected from different writers who, were, who wrote independently of one another? Right. You know, if you were to ask me, Eric, do you have, uh, do you have $10 in your wallet? Let me see. I put some in the box out there, so I'm not really... I say, well, no and yes. What does that mean? Well, I have a $20 bill in my wallet, but I don't have a 10. But 20 is more than 10, so you at least have 10. You see, sometimes we have to kind of explain ourselves a little bit. You know, if, if you were to say, you know, if... if you all had a group and y'all went to, just had a fun outing together going to an Atlanta Braves baseball game. And let's say that someone asked one of the young people at school the next, uh, on, on Monday, well, what'd you do this weekend? I went to a Braves game. Oh, who'd you go with? Oh, I went with Joe and John and, and Billy and, and Sarah. We had a lot of fun. Does the student who went to the Braves game, does the student, let's say y'all, you all had 69 people who went to this game. I mean, let's say it was a hundred people. 
Imagine how annoying it would be. Well, I guess I have, I mean, I'm going to be lying if I don't name, you know, one, two, three. No, I'm sorry. I, I say this with all love in my heart. Don't do that. Don't, don't try to list a hundred people. No one, no one wants to hear that, okay? But, you know, there might be in, in, on different occasions where you might mention, let's say you were at school and someone asked you this, but then let's say you were on the soccer field and, and someone knows some of the members here at the West Huntsville congregation, and so they don't know those people that you named at school today, but they know some of the other people you, you went And so maybe you name other people the second time you tell the story, and someone says to you, after overhearing you say both things, they say, well, you lied. Because this, today at school you said these individuals went with you to that baseball game, and then tonight at soccer practice you said it, was the, it, it were these individuals. No, you didn't lie. Of course, God always knows our intentions, and so let's, let's make sure that we don't try to you know, deceive people for sinful reasons and motivations. But the fact is, we oftentimes will tell different things in different settings for different reasons. And supplementation is not equivalent to lying, and supplementation is not equivalent to a contradiction. I'm going to move on from this one here and move to our sixth point, because I want to get to through this if possible. Figurative language abounds in Scripture. And one of the reasons why people contend that there are all these mistakes in Scripture is because they are, they're not aware or they refuse to acknowledge the many figures of speech, including a number of Hebrew and Greek idioms in Scripture. You know, there are a lot of, can you imagine, some of you can imagine learning English as maybe it's, it's your second language. And I, sometimes I think, Wow, how difficult that must be because there are all sorts of English idioms where the, the total sum of the words that you say don't really mean what you're thinking they mean. I mean, you know, he quit cold turkey. What does a turkey that's cold have anything to do with me quitting, you know, a bad habit? I don't know where that phrase came from, but I know what the phrase means. It means I just dropped... That might be another idiom. You know, I dropped, I didn't literally drop the habit. I stopped doing what I was doing immediately. You see, if we, if we word everything so literally, it's just, it's, uh, it makes, you know, speech and language, you know, not near as fun and not, you know, as enjoyable to listen to. And if you try to name a hundred people that you went to a game with, that's going to be annoying. And we use figures of speech so much. They're oftentimes helpful, and I mean helpful in the sense that we can say things oftentimes more quickly and more fun, you might say, but the sum of the words, I have a frog in my throat. You know, I was talking to my, my Shelby today, my daughter who called me today, and, and she was talking and she sounded kind of not so good. Like I knew she was a little under the weather this week, and she it was all the mucus in her throat, and so I was like, I could have said, girl, do you have a frog in your throat? And someone could just, I mean, whoa, a frog in your throat. But we know what we mean by that. It doesn't mean literally a frog. Well, think about all the figurative language that we use and figurative statements that we say. We use figures of speech so much, friends, that we don't even know when we use it. We use it all the time. See, I just used one, didn't I? I used hyperbole. We don't literally use it all the time, but we use it a lot. I mean, think about this figure of speech called prolepsis. It's kind of, I will say, it's kind of boring to define things. I mean, most people don't re read dictionaries for fun, do they? So when you define something like prolepsis, it's not really that fun. The assignment of something such as a name or event to a time that precedes it. Do what? The assignment of something, such as an event or a name to a time that precedes... What, what does that mean? Well, let me just... Oftentimes, examples, they, we remember the examples a whole lot better than we remember definitions or illustrations. We, we remember these things. You know, this year, my wife and I celebrated 25 years of marriage. I married my wife on June the 14th, 1997. I try to remember that day every year, by the way. Try not to forget that. Did any of you just pick up, though, that, that I just used a figure of speech? I said I married my wife. 
You see, we have used that figure of speech so much for decades and maybe centuries now that we don't even know it's a figure of speech. You didn't literally, I didn't literally marry my wife. I married the woman who became my wife after we went through the ceremony and signed the old contract. I guess we still sign sign our, our sign the papers today. Do we still do that in the state of Alabama? I think we do. But when I said I do and she said I do, then she became my wife and I became her husband at that point. But oftentimes we use prolepsis. We assign the title wife or husband to a time that precedes it. She became my wife really, literally, after we said I do. Well, what does that have to do with anything in the Bible? Well, remember this alleged contradiction that we mentioned earlier. Well, how did... How could Jesus have been seen by the twelve if Matthias had not yet been chosen and Judas had already died? And yet Jesus said that, that excuse me, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 15 that Jesus was seen by the twelve. Well, could he not have been including Matthias there by use of the figure of speech known as prolepsis? One of the qualifications of the replacement for Judas was that person had to have witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. And then he spent days, months, or probably years uh, as a witness to the resurrection of Jesus and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I saw him. I'm an apostle. So when Paul wrote this a couple of decades or more later, if Matthias was still living, can you imagine how natural it would be to say, and he was seen by the twelve, which included Matthias. Or maybe he wasn't including Matthias. Maybe he was using another figure of speech that I don't even know what the name of it is. I just know that sometimes we use numbers as names and not literal numbers. Cephas, or the apostles, all 12 of them, as you look at those verses one more time, is it possible that the 12, there at the, on the very first verse, 1 Corinthians 15, he was seen by Cephas, then by the 12, that that 12 did not represent a literal 12 individuals, but the group of men who followed Jesus closely during His ministry and were His special disciples. I mean, we use a figure of speech where numbers are used as names more than numbers fairly often. Anybody want to take a guess how many teams are in the Big Ten Conference right now? I don't even know. I just, last I heard it wasn't 10, I think it was up to about 14, and now these conferences are expanding. I mean, I don't know how many teams are in the Big 12 right now. I've heard that a couple of those teams are jumping ship, including my favorite team, Oklahoma, and they're coming to where big boy football is played, I guess, or, you know, uh, maybe I, I'm, I'm biased toward the South and the Southeastern Conference a little bit, and so they're, they're coming over here, and then the Big 12's adding, I don't know how many teams, and it's kind of confusing, but you know, for right now, they're still called the Big 12, and I think right now they have 10 teams in that conference. Anybody measured a 2 by 4 lately? Do you literally get a 2 by 4 No, you don't, unless you're going to a lumber yard that I'm not familiar with. Listen, I got some 4 by 4s the other day, and they measured more like 3 by 3s but back in 1884, when this coin, when this term was coined, if I remember correctly, it was a, about that year. Not that I was alive then, but I read that it was around that time that this was coined. And you likely did probably get a piece of wood that was right at two by four inches. But who wants to go around talking about, oh, one and a half by three and a half? We just would rather not do that because the number has just kind of stuck. Anybody ever actually counted a hundred legs on? Centipedes or a thousand legs on millipedes. Friends, numbers oftentimes are used as names and we have to remember and we could spend all day talking about figures of speech and how the Bible, sometimes the Bible writers used sarcasm. You remember when the prophet Micaiah told Ahaz to go on up in battle? Yeah, you're going to get that victory. And then the wicked... Uh, I said Ahaz, King Ahab, he knew quickly, wait a minute, you're, you're not being serious. You, you, you never prophesy right about me. What is that? What about when Job said to his friends, oh, surely wisdom is going to die with you guys. He didn't literally mean that. He was using sarcasm. There's sarcasm, there's, there's metaphor, similes. You know, one day 
with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. That doesn't mean the days of creation were a thousand years long. And even if it did mean that, what, you're going to add 6,000 years to the age of the earth? That doesn't really do evolution any good, but that's not what the passage is talking about anyway. It's, there's a figure of speech there. It's talking about the, the day that Jesus returns and how if He promised He was going to return 2,000 or 1,000 years ago, it's as good as if He promised it a day ago because time has no effect on God's promises. Oftentimes, when people claim that there are problems in Scripture, they are overlooking the fact that there are figures of speech that are used. And just by the way, Thomas called, one, uh, called the twin there in John 20, 24, one of the twelve was not with the apostles, was not with them when Jesus came. You remember the first time John talks about this? Notice that we have the twelve mentioned in the Gospel of John after Judas had gone out, betrayed Jesus, and hanged himself, and before, before Matthias was chosen to replace him. The word twelve is used not to mean a literal number, but to mean refer to that special group of people. There's a whole lot more that could be said, but I hope that these principles are helpful to you. As we close, let me just mention, I'll, I'll lead us in a closing prayer here in just a minute, that uh, there's some material in the back, uh, uh, a few books called The Anvil Rings, Answers to Alleged Bible Discrepancies. And uh, a lot of this material that we dealt with tonight is in chapter 1 of either volume 1 or volume 2. And the reason I can't remember that is because there was more that I was going to cover tonight, but it's already 8 o'clock, and it was in one of those other chapters. And I'll just summarize it real quickly as kind of the final point. And, and that is that when you look at two or more different passages and you are comparing them, you need to make sure, we have to make sure that the Bible writers are talking about the same person, place, or thing at the same time and in the same sense that words are used. You know, you, you can use words very differently. You can say the word... Um, overlooked and mean two different things. You can say, I overlooked his paper today. Like you were looking over it. Or you could say, I overlooked where that paper was today. Or you could say, I overlooked the paper, but I overlooked the end notes because I'm not really, I don't really maybe read the end notes, even though sometimes there's some really good information in the end notes. You see, you can use the same word in two totally different ways. We've got to make sure we're talking about the same person, place, or thing. When James is said to have died in Acts chapter 12, and then James is alive in Acts 15, well, those are two different Jameses. Jameses? Is that how you say it? Anyway, I think tonight we've been here about long enough, but let me say, if you want more of this information, there's some things in the back that I hope will be helpful to you. There's also some of the Apologetics Press um, study Bibles. If you uh, would like to look at those, feel free to do so. Let's bow and have a word of prayer. Holy Father, thank You for the time that You've given us here this evening. Thank You for all of these individuals, the families who are here, the precious young people and um, the middle-aged and the older ones. We're so encouraged by Your church, by the congregation here at West Huntsville, by all who are visiting. Thank You for giving us this time to look into the Bible and to make a good, rational judgment about whether it is Your Word or whether it is not. Father, we don't want to be foolish individuals just to be uh, foolish and to think or do things that are unwise. We also know that we don't seek to be wise in the eyes of the world around us. We're happy and we're honored that we can be if people view us as fools for Jesus Christ. But Father, as we examine the evidence, help us to just follow it and follow through with it each day of our lives as we let our light shine in a world that seems to be getting darker as Satan is alive and well and sin is real, we just pray that You'll help us to, to study the Bible, study Your Holy Word, let it impact us in a very real, sincere manner and help us, Father, use us to Your honor, to Your glory as we seek to set the right kind of example in a loving, humble, and meek way to a, a lost world that that is around us, and, and for brethren maybe who have fallen away, we pray that You will help us to be loving and patient with them and to pray for them. And, and we do pray for them at this very moment, those who have walked away from the truth. And just pray that, that You will prick their hearts and that You will use Your people and Your church to, uh, to help them and, and that people will be open to the truth of Your Word, including coming to an understanding that You exist 
that the Bible is your word and that Jesus Christ is your Son, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you very much. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.